right. So, I mean, is there, it, do I have, anyone, like, have a specific plan for how this was going to go? Or do you want to just sort of uh, uh, recap? I'll be recapping the last one then. Yeah, I think so. I mean, one thing that I just wanted to begin with was essentially that uh, this chapter, throughout this chapter, what it's doing, it's sort of connecting um, the sort of uh, syntheses that we created in the first two, the imminent law, with how that corresponds to... uh, So we had the molecular in the last uh, chapters. We were given a molecular law of how the unconscious operates. Now we're going to look at it from the molar operation. And the key thing to keep in mind, I think, is that desire production and uh, uh, social production are two uh, are two different regimes, but they're both the same production ultimately. And that's the key distinction that they're going to make throughout this chapter. Uh, and then another thing that they're going to connect is uh, libido, Freud's concept of libido, and uh, Adam Smith and Ricardo's notion of how labor power or how the capacity to produce connects with that so I mean one thing that they point out to is that Freud's discovery of libido is a direct parallel to Marx's discovery uh, I mean uh, Adam Smith and Ricardo's discovery of labor because what they did was it's almost uh, uh, you're no longer defining something by its uh, its uh, its object, right? Freud is not describing the desire for an object. He's, desires, he's describing desire as a capacity to produce. Um, Adam Smith and Ricardo are not de- describing wealth from an object there, or some sort of thing. They're describing it from the value, from the sense of the, about, the ability to produce. And that sort of goes in and ties into that whole concept that under capitalism, there's this notion of a decoded flow. And for Deleuze and Guattari, the retroactive reading of history can be read as a history that's uh, proceeding to a decoded flow. And that's how they tried to tie everything together in this chapter. I mean, in this entire chapter, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to read a quote by Dan Smith, because I think he explains some of this really well with regards to where Deleuze and Guattari see decoded flows in the capitalist system. So I'm going to quote this out. Um, The definition of of capitalism that Marx gives in the first book of Capital is organized around the encounter of two elements of abstraction, or what Deleuze will call two decoded flows, the flows of subjective labor and the flows of objective capital. On the one hand, the flow of labor must must no longer be be determined or codified as slavery or, or serfdom, but must become naked and free labor. In the form of the worker having to sell his labor capacity, on the other hand, wealth must no longer be determined by land wealth or the money dealing with merchants, but must become pure heterogeneous and independent capital, which is capable of buying this labor. Capitalism only appears when only when only these two purely quantitative flows of unqualified capital and unqualified labor encounter each other and conjugate. Yeah, that that actually also that's very that's very close or pretty much exactly what Marx himself writes um you know if, if that's this is um uh daniel smith sort of reading deleuze and Guattari, reading marx right but um that's pretty much what what marx says actually that um in a way what um Anna smith and ricardo uh sort of the real the thing they really discovered more than anything else was uh was abstract labor just labor in a sort of broad universal um sense uh, in particular and and the idea of you know capital in that sense you know as a sort of, uh, decoded flow I mean, marx wouldn't put in exactly those terms but again that's 
sounds to me, just based on what I'm hearing you say there, pretty close as well. So it, it's it's yeah, it's definitely informed by Marx. <laughs> right. I, I think so. There's a quote by Deleuze Guattari that actually I don't agree with too much, to be honest. And I think maybe maybe this is more to do with temperament or something else. But Deleuze and Guattari say they've always been Marxists. But I find that really hard to reconcile because, you know, even Leotard, when he wrote his review, you know, Jean-Francois Leotard, he was the guy who wrote uh, Liberty and All Economy, which was a response to yeah. anti-Oedipus largely. But uh, when he wrote his review for anti-Oedipus, he says there's an implicit critique of Marx rather than an explicit one. But, but I see an explicit critique of Marx in it, so. Um, yes. Um, it's a critique in some ways in that they're not going to accept it wholesale. Um, there's a really great line somewhere in this. I think they're, they're talking about so, um, psychoanalysis in this case rather than Marx, but they say... Uh, is it playing um, take it and leave it? Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're not going to be forced to just to choose one or the other, like take it or leave it, right? We'll do what we can with what works from it um, and leave the rest, right? Um, I would say that in many ways they are, but it depends on depends on what you think is central to, to Marxism. Um, like, like for example, if you think that the kind of um, if you think it's not enough to be a historical materialist, you have to be a dialectical um, uh, materialist, then that that would immediately just disqualify them, right? Because they've got no interest in uh, Hegel, right? And and that that sort of tradition, um, explicitly anti-Hegel Deleuze's. Um, so it's it's complicated, but I don't. They're not anti-Marxist. I think they work with a lot of what Marx wrote. I think they they can't see any other alternative. Um, they appreciate a lot of it. Uh, Deleuze himself, of course, was going to write a book called The Grandeur of Marx before he died. Um, so I think just it's probably helpful to look at it as a kind of critical engagement with Marxism um, rather than a wholesale rejection or a wholesale um, acceptance of it. Um, I don't I think, think it would be unfair to call it that. I think in, in part, part of the reason why this text looks like a critique of Marx is because they're cross-applying uh, Nietzsche, Kant, Freud, and Marx all to one another, right? Um, but, but, but I would stop short in taking it, and I, I don't think this is what Varun is doing, but it reminded me of like, I'm going to stop short of the wholesale, like kind of like Landian position that actually like anti-Oedipus is sort of like an almost like anti-leftism book. Um, Because like, I I don't think that's what you see here is like a fundamental critique of Marx. Um, Because I actually do think, uh, and, and uh, I think Varun, yeah, Varun texted me this earlier where he was talking about the relationship between subjective labor and uh, fixed and objective capital. Uh, these, I, I'd be interested to see what Varun thinks about whether or not these things trace over one another. Because I, I think they generally do. No, I mean, so, I mean, with regards to the critique of Marx, I mean, I'm not taking that Landian take. I mean, the land take is something completely different. That's something like, I think that that's, that has to do with like some sort of transcendental inhumanism or something much crazier like that. I mean, um, what I mean by the critique of Marx is that it's, uh, it's, uh, it's in that aristocratic sense of Nietzsche. And in the sense that, uh, you know, the, the, they don't care about, people almost like that so they care more about the laws of the unconscious they care about uh 
which which where 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 are the paralogisms and where the where are the imminent uses? If it doesn't follow the imminent uses, we then then it's you know then it's unethical for them. And if if it's a matter of uh, and they see it more in this tradition of Spinoza and Nietzsche, right? And that's the whole tradition of the great uh, almost. Uh, aristocrats of philosophy, right? I mean, Nietzsche is the heretic, and and uh, I mean, Spinoza is the heretic, and Nietzsche is like the criminal in terms of the history of Western philosophy for Deleuze. And the case is that you know, as, as Matt said earlier, pretty well, it's like this perfect society is not even for us, right? They're not constructing it out of any human or any uh, individual, as you know, Marx had proletariat or bourgeoisie, something like that. There's no distinction anymore. It's more about essentially what are the laws of imminence and which contradicts that and how we should understand society in that regard. But I mean, coming back to your point about what you were saying, asking me about uh, that subjective essence and I mean, objective capital and subjective labor, I I think there is a parallel to Marx's because they're actually taking that whole idea of, you know, how Marx took Adam Ricardo and Adam Smith and Ricardo's notion of labor and they're applying it because they say Freud's concept of libido correlates with that directly. And they say it's a discovery of the exact same thing when it happened at that historical time period. So it is explicitly a use of Marx at the same time. And I would agree with you there. It's probably also worth just um, just maybe pointing out that, of course, Marx's uh, capital was um, explicitly an imminent critique of the work of Adam Smith and David Ricardo bringing them to a point of auto-critique as the kind of ideological representatives of bourgeois um, political economy, um, which is, of course, exactly what um, Deleuze and Guattari are doing in this book with psychoanalysis, while also seeking to um, join up these different uh, fields, which have were traditionally seen as sort of distinct ones, um, you know, psychology, psychoanalysis, sociology, history, you know, economics, politics, all this sort of stuff. Um, they're trying to show this is this is all part of sort of one and the same um, process of, of of production in a way. Um, so in a way, they they're actually following in in, in Marx's footsteps in that sense. Right. The key thing to see here is that, as you know, according to Marx, at least Marx's reading of Adam Smith and Ricardo is that he saw them as doing something similar in political economy to what uh, you know, almost what. Uh, Kierkegaard did with the concept of God, right? Kierkegaard said, let's not understand God in terms of, you know, some sort of object of God. We understand God as the capacity to have faith. And what what, uh, Marx and Ricardo are doing, they're they're doing a similar thing, right? They locate the essence of wealth, not in its object, which is land or money, but rather in the Mm -hmm. abstract subjective essence, as I said earlier, which is the labor capacity or the capacity to produce. And, you know, if you want to go back to even like what they were talking about earlier, this idea of capacities and potentials, that's non-representational to say the least. Yeah. Uh, I I think there's, so I'm not sure whether it's very useful to discuss uh, whether or not Deleuze and Gattori are Marxists. I'm not sure what that would even mean in that sense. But um, what you just said about... um, uh, Marx being an imminent critique of 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 capitalism in the, or, or bringing capitalism to an imminent critique to its own auto critique, I think that's a very important point, and I think um, their reading of Marx and that's a difference, and that's in, inscribed into the notion of universal history, is that the 
the the really important part of Marx is the mode of critique, right? So not so much uh, just repeating what Marx said. And that's something that I actually really dislike about of, about lots of contemporary Marxism that they just that there's this um, there's this um, tendency to just repeat what what Marx said or, or require Marxism to be what Marx d did in terms of what he actually said not so much in in the mode of he, of how he works right um, and in in, in the neighborhood of that, I would also say that it's important to read Deleuze and Guattari here in response to their, to their contemporary uh, Marxisms, mostly Althusser and um, Sartre. And I think specifically when we talk about universal history, so I'm not very well read in those two Marxisms, but um, I think specifically um, when we look at their um, notion of history and um, how Deleuze and Guattari conceptualize history, it's, it should be really con um, productive to look at how it's different from those two. Uh, major streams of Marxism. Yeah, no, I think I, I basically agree with you. Um, it's funny, like, if you go back to um, uh, Georg Lukács, who, I mean, it was 1927, he wrote um, History and Class Consciousness, um, and then he wrote um, What is Orthodox Marxism? And he says Orthodox Marxism is not about a commitment to any particular, um, any particular argument or conclusion or whatever of that Marx had, but it's, it's commitment to the, the, the fundamental methodology of it, um, regardless of where that leads you in contemporary conditions. Um, and I think you're probably, I agree with you, you're probably right, people do stick a bit too rigidly to, you know, insisting that everything Marx specifically analysed in, in, in his time was is, is correct still today. But um, that's one of the reasons why I, uh, I, well, I really enjoy Marx, Marxist uh, uh, theory and also really enjoyed Deleuze and Qatari because I, I sort of see them as doing a similar thing, right? Just refusing to take it, um, you know, uh, just accept what Marx says as gospel um, and more trying to rework it and, and do something productive with it today um, because their context was really important, as you said. As a, one more thing, um, I'm not sure who said it right. Um... But someone mentioned um, Deleuze and Guattari not uh, caring about people. And I think that's actually something that's very similar to Marx, at least in the Capital, uh, because there's no space in Capital for, um, for, for people. Like, it's, it's all Capital, right? <laughs> yes, and I was going to mention this earlier, but I didn't want to sort of, you know, jump in and speak too much. But... Um... Uh, there's a really good blog post you can read um, called Accelerate Marx. Um, the guy who wrote it, uh, sorry, something Garten, uh, I can't remember his full name. Um, he, he, he's excellent. And he quotes, cause, uh, so Capital Volume 3 gets very, very, Vincent Garten, yeah, thank you. Yeah, he gets really weird in Volume 3, Marx does. And in this bit, uh, Garten quotes a section from Capital Volume 3. Um, 
and he, he asks you to sort of think about this next to someone like Nick Land. Marx writes, in the first place, too large a portion of the produced population is not really capable of working and is, through force of circumstances, made dependent on exploiting the labour of others or on labour which can pass under this name only under a miserable mode of production. In the second place, not enough means of production are produced to permit the employment of the entire able-bodied population under the most productive conditions, so that their absolute working period could be shortened by the mass and effectiveness of a constant capital employed during working hours. And so Garton says, now you get the climax of it. Capital, finally, becomes an alienated, independent social power, which stands opposed to society as an object, and as an object that is the capitalist's source of power. The contradiction between the general social power into which capital develops, on the one hand, and the private power of the individual capitalists over these social conditions of production, on the other, become ever more irreconcilable. Um, if you like, you read that and you realize you wrote this quite a long time ago. I think that's really fascinating, actually. I mean, doesn't that like not to not to lean too heavily into like you know someone who brought themselves really into like. Uh, like an almost like philosophically catatonic state, but like uh, th- th- that does sort of remind me of um, uh, capitalized intelligence and then uh, sort of humanist uh, moralist philosophy sitting as like the human security system, right? Like the desiring machines essay, things like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Garden's try- he he does that, and then he says um, at the end of that paragraph, you know, it, it becomes ever more, ever more irreconcilable. He says, "Enter Nick Land." Quote. The cyberpunk circuitry of self-organizing planetary commoditronics escaped nominal bourgeois control in the late 19th century. Yeah, you know, there's some links there. It's interesting, and you know, it's probably not entirely a coincidence. Also, am I the first person to ever actually directly quote Nick Land on this uh, reading group? <laughs> yes, but we will allow it. Uh, well, I quoted one of the good bits. So that's okay. <laughs> He has yeah, three I, of them. Look for them. They're a mystery. It's fun to find. It's like a treasure hunt. No, I mean, I, uh, you guys are probably going to hate me for this, but I, I prefer like someone like Nick Lyon to Mark Fisher. I think he's just significantly more interesting. You, I mean, do you, sorry, I missed miss some of that. Do you, you prefer like Mark Fisher to Nick Land? No, no, the opposite. Nick Lyon to Mark Fisher. This is literally oh. heresy. Like, oh, I <laughs> No, I mean, like, uh, a non-vitalist uh, reading of Deleuzeing Water, it could be interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that'd be interesting if, like, we weren't reading thinkers who were so heavily reliant on, on uh, Henry Bergson. Like, I think, uh, you know, a non-vitalist reading of, of this text becomes more interesting, particularly in this section, which is why I was really kind of, like, deeply interested in your opening analysis, Um uh, but what I, I, I would like to get is a little bit more of a discussion about uh, what the Lizgatari are doing as it relates to uh, the function of history, um, particularly on page 140. Um, and I'm just wondering what you guys think about uh, the discussion of history as like a series of contingencies uh, and of ruptures and limits rather than as continuity. Because what that actually reminds me of is that quote from capitalist realism that once once Mark Fisher passed was sprawled across the walls of his university, was uh, sprawled across the walls of his university. And when he passed away, so I'm just wondering, like, you know, that this 
positioning of Nick Land contra Mark Fisher becomes interesting as it relates to this particularly. I mean, I think I might have a misreading of that, which, but I think it's interesting regardless because I'm reading that coming from difference and repetition. And one thing that's very contingency plays such an important role in difference and repetition is that has to do with nonlinearity in terms of time cycles, right? In the sense that, uh, you know, evolution is, can be read as a system of contingencies because evolution is basically, uh, it's 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 dependent on these so it's dependent on organization and that's how it's sort of how morphogenesis works right it's dependent on the relationships in between and so if you were to actually rotate the timeline backwards like you know like if you had like a tv remote and you were going backwards and forwards and then you go backwards you go forwards every evolutionary organism will have a different different evolution right because it's it's sort of what complexity theory states that it's about the relationships in between and those contingencies that lead to more bifurcations that lead to essentially more random species of mutations that happen only based on relationships in between things right it's from those relationships of uh, uh, specific contingencies that things happen but i think that's different from what they're actually talking about here i just i just thought that was an interesting reading yeah, I suspect they're probably going along something like the the Foucauldian line there, Nietzschean line. Um, yes, I mean that that that's what they have to be doing, right? Because particularly throughout this chapter, they're going to really, really, really hit the second essay of the genealogy of morals. Yeah. Um, and I I think uh, that's why, and because that's the conventional wisdom with this text, like that's why I was particularly interested with what Varun had brought to the table here. Right. I mean, uh, also, like, uh, the, the one thing to say is that how it's, it's from the introduction of capital that we get more and more decoded flows, right? Desires are also liberated, as we saw in that opening bit, how essentially, uh, you know, and in, in, in you go back to, uh, I mean, it, 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 we didn't have, during barter systems, desires were much more restricted. But the, the, the benefit that came with barter systems, actually, that that, that, that was there was that essentially the, the divisions in regime were lesser. In terms of uh, in terms of capitalism as we have it now, we have the most extreme division between social reproduction and desiring production in terms of deferring regimes rather than being the one unified movement. Rather, in those periods of time where, you know, desire, despite the fact that desire was more restricted, I mean, flows of desire were more restricted, it was more controlled where two regimes were were much closer to each other. Yeah, and I think um, in an interview, um, Deleuze says that one of the um, reasons why they, what, not, 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 we're not trying to bring it back to Marx deliberately, but one of the reasons why they so appreciate Marx's analysis of capitalism is precisely that capital continually um, pushes towards its own limits. It tends towards its own limits, and it's precisely through the sort of breaking down of those limits and the setting up of new ones um, over and over again, but it expands, right, in these sort of cycles of um, creative destruction. Um, and that's what they, um, on the one hand, like about Marx, sort of the economic part of it. They, they've said it in an interview, I could find the link. Um, but it's also what you see when they talk about it you know, in different um, terms, right? They talk about um, the tendency towards uh, schizophrenia. Um, but they also talk about sort of counter tendencies and how it. Um, it comes up against its own limits over and over again, and through pushing beyond them, um, grows. Um, which is uh, two ways of looking at a similar a similar phenomenon, I think, of capitalism. And no, it's not it's not Schumpeter. I mean, the phrase "creative destruction" might, 
um, it's the idea of um, capital pushing against its own limits and overcoming them. Um, that that that's capital volume one. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but one one thing though that 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 uh, you know, Deleuze and Guattari will be not necessarily critiquing Marx, but but uh, moving away from from Marx is this position of the. The, the the non-existence of any like actual threatening contradiction um you know the the quote is nothing's ever died from contradiction and no systems ever died from contradictions and then like just look over to america right there are all of these uh, immense class and and economic contradictions but it, it tends to find a way to reappropriate these these elements and and fold it back in part of part of this text that's so fascinating is like it it, it truly almost can set up like a deep hatred for capital because of how those guitar show that capital can just move so much faster than we all collectively can as like individual humans. Yeah, it's it's also why I think it's an understandable um, why why something like accelerationism is an, an understandable reading of. Um, Deleuze and Guattari, um, at least it's some of the some of the ideas in this text. Um, this is this is also what Nick Land himself talks about: is the idea that um, capital capital as the most radical force ever known to, or revolutionary force known to human history, right? Um, so he ends up from that perspective arguing that sort of um, anti-capitalism in its many forms is actually uh, an inherently conservative notion, pushing against the process of um, sort of schizophrenizing process. And I'm not saying, not giving any weight to his argument, but you, I can see from that sort of uh, reading how, you, how you'd get there. Yeah. Because yeah, I mean... Kind of like, what is it that you're opposing, right? I mean, um, that's why Deleuze and Guattari in his book say, you know, is the problem maybe we haven't gone far enough yet, right? Maybe the flows need to be pushed further, decoded further. Yeah, no, the, the you know, as, as Nietzsche says, like, to accelerate the process blah blah yeah <laughs> i know it's interesting because now we're now we're in a stage i think in this book where we can kind of have these discussions and just um think about it i guess yeah i, no, mean, I, I mean i think this stuff is is interesting but Varun, no i mean uh, i was wondering i did should we start like I, I don't know if everyone was there for the last session but we can go through like some general terms like flow code or stock yeah yeah, probably useful. Um, I, yeah, I, I wasn't there yesterday, actually. So, yeah, I mean, uh, flow is basically uh, it's it's for, for if, so at least we we've, we've seen how they used flow earlier, right? But now we're going to look at it from an economic point of view, and I think it's important to also say that you know it's not just a flow; it's a break flow, right? Otherwise, otherwise, it makes no sense if you don't have those breaks, and they're not yeah. like they're not they're not negations of breaks; they're just almost transformations that take place in breaks, like a folding almost. And so uh, with regards to uh, flow over here, we're talking about flow as an economics, right? Flow is the, tra and actually fun fact, uh, the concept of break flows comes from Keynesian economics. That's where they borrowed that concept. So, <laughs> a and they applied it to libido and stuff, which is very interesting. They're like working back on history in two different ways. But uh, flow, so basically from an economic, an economic point of view, it's it's basically the transmission of money. And essentially, it's the transmission of economic value. And it moves from one pole to another, right? You have one outgoing pole, you have one receiving pole. 
And uh, so a poll is basically like a firm, it could be a company, it could be a corporation. And these work as interceptors. And then there's of these, uh, their outgoing flows and incoming flows in, for example, one's bank accounts, right? And uh, that's essentially how they view the transfer of economic value through uh, the capitalist system, basically. Yeah, and you can see the abstraction there too, right? Bank accounts, there's nowadays it's very seldom actual cash moving. It's all about the accounting and the numerics of it rather than the hard cash. Right, and then that's when we get to decoded flows, right? And the key thing here is that it's it, a de- uh, a flow of desire. So the decoded, the coding and encoding happens uh, with regards to the socius, and uh, it's so it's impossible to understand a flow other than uh, the operation that, other than understanding the operation that codes on it. But then we have to also make the distinction that this does not mean that you know we first have a flow that's moving and then a code that comes up on it, right? Something it's it's not like a Kant's notion of concepts where you have an experience and a concept that works above it to sort of generate that experience in a similar way. It's but it's it's uh, much different in that sense that it's only you're only able to almost uh, cognitive size it through the ca- ca- concept of coding, and that's why essentially the night they say the nightmare fall society is just the decoded flow. <laughs> Out of curiosity, um, because they're using the word decoded, uh, to ask a question, does decoded refer to a flow that at one time was coded and is now no longer coded? I think it can be both, right? It can be something new that hasn't become coded, and it can be something that was coded that's being, you know, broken down and then coded again. And, you know, as like, like uh, you know, I think... The sort of the way that labor works, right? As you go into capitalism, there's a coded labor structure and then it becomes broken apart, decoded, and then it becomes the sort of more abstract, right? And it's, it goes into a new process of being coded. Maybe yeah, that. yeah that, that, that's absolutely right. This will, this will become clearer, though, in, in later sections in this chapter where we'll talk about uh, uh, where, where we'll finally get an understanding of history through deterritorialization, reterritorialization. But what they will say is, I think it's even in this section is is that the capitalism kind of haunts uh, these these social organizations. So when they say that the socius is, is inscriptive, uh, that in particular mo- moments in time about of uh, about ex- extracting enjoyment uh, in in juridical processes, all that stuff, that that's encoding, and then abstraction of these things is is the decoding of those flows. So what we have to do is we have to go back to the way that uh, that Varun uh, described it so succinctly. Uh, that I, so I think it was a Jack that asked the question. So yeah, I think you're the way you're reading it is is absolutely right. But I, obviously, I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I think one thing we need to keep in mind is it's the same operation that happens with the signifying chain on the body without organs. It's the same operation. And it, it, you know, it seems very different, at least the way they're describing it. But really, it's the same thing with the significant chain, right? So coding basically operates as inscription or recording. That's basically by means of signs, whether these signs are no, like numbers on a bank statement or marks or marks inscribed directly on a body, right? These signs are non-signifying. It does not matter what they symbolize or mean per se. What matters is how they function in the determination of a flow.
And actually, the term comes from the biological concept of genetic code. That's where they got that concept of coding and decoding. I actually think that's a really, really good explanation, and I'd, I'd, I'd kind of love it if you, could, if you could just sort of say that again, just so like we don't we don't miss that, or like we weren't concentrating on something because that was a yeah. Really good <laughs> like, Steve, so, I'm not even joking. Like, if you could honestly just say that again, because I I think that's a really good explanation. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, what I did was I have some notes. I just I just took some Dan Smith quotes and I and I added my own words, so they're a lot they go a lot quicker. So basically, coding operates through a process of inscription or recording. It's the same thing that we saw in terms of the body without organs. In other words, by means of signs, whether these signs are numbers on a bank statement or marks inscribed directly on a body, these signs are non-signifying. That is, it does not matter what they mean or symbolize per se. What matters is how they function in determination of flow. That last part about functioning is the last uh, bit of non-representation of the imminent use of the body with our organs. Okay, then it sounds like what Will said is correct then, that um, decoding refers to the abstraction of the codified flow so as to, um, uh, it sounds like um, to be consistent with you, there's a loss of signification through that. Right, I mean, so it, it's it's a it's it, in a code it allows for both transmission and re reproduction of information, and it, so this so it's it, I, I think I think uh, let's let's read it uh, directly as they talk about genetic codes, because you know I think the same re with regards to the body without organs and as being an egg, it is really an egg in the sense that when the egg develops as a genome, it has its own disjunctions on it itself. So, I mean, I, I think it's better to read it as genetic code itself. Did you have, a, so, did you have, a, yeah, did you have a specific passage you wanted to read there? Yeah, I'm, I'll go ahead. So the concept of a genetic code is a common characteristic of human cultures and of living species of social reproduction as much as biological reproduction. And that's from 289 of Antiochus. The general trait characterizing code have been rediscovered today in what is called a genetic code. And essentially inscription, in both cases, that the code is what allows for the transmission or reproduction of information, which is why Deleuze terms it a synthesis of inscription or recording. This information, however, is, 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 uh, is never pre-given, but is produced with each transmission. I think that sort of uh, explains Jack's thing to the fact that it's never pre-given, but it's produced with each transmission. Already in difference and repetition, Deleuze has noted the, the significance of sex rather than asexual reproduction in biology lies in the fact that it entails the incessant production of varied indiv individual differences. In asexual reproduction, the parent simply reproduces itself, where in sexual production, the mixing of genetic material of two parents produces a new individual, a mutation. The information contained in the genetic code of the parents is indeed transmitted, but the exact nature of the new individual is not determined in advance. Every coding is hence the production of the new. The same is true of social reproduction. Even in so-called primitive societies, kinship systems are not structures and that simply need to be applied, but practices that entail an entire strategy of praxis. No one knows in advance who are they going to marry. Ethnologists are, con are constantly saying that, kin that kinship rules are neither applicable nor applicable to real marriages. Not because these rules are ideal, but ra rather because they determine critical points where the apparatus starts up again sorry i might have stumbled a bit on it it's a bit early in the morning yeah i think my brain is just turning to like pate right now 
probably like smear it on a piece of toast or something after reading some of this. <laughs> the learners uh, of Italia have a habit of doing that, I think. Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff I think, I, like, I think I, I, the way this book starts, and it almost starts like, uh, if you if you ever seen almost that cartoonish depiction of a relay race where the guy puts his gun up and it just accelerates immediately from that first line because they go so dense so fast. Yeah. I think that's it's uh, it's almost like it's almost part like of, uh, amphetamine to a certain degree. Yeah, part of the issue though too is that like so many of these concepts in this first section are fundamental to this chapter and. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of the meme like where it's the the character in Toy Story is like, I don't want to play with you anymore. Like he brings up these concepts that are that are so uh, elucidating later, but just never will mention them directly by name. Um, so so that's why, you know, these these initial three sections of this chapter are important, because especially as we get to like the Erstat and, and all of these other uh, developmental concepts that just are so ridiculously difficult to tack onto one another. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm looking forward to the Ostat bit. Um, is it okay if I read a little, just a short few sentences from this chapter? Because I'd like, I'd love to have a chat to, uh, to have a chance. Yeah, to, I think it's great. You know, run, you know to have a chat about this. Um, it's fascinating. Um, so on my, in my copy, I've got the uh, Bloomsbury edition. Um, it's page 164. Um, yeah, so it's basically the second or third paragraph of the inscribing socius, they write, the earth is the primitive savage unity of desire and production. For the earth is not merely the multiple and divided object of labor. It is also the unique, indivisible entity, the full body that falls back on the forces of production and appropriates them for its own as a natural or divine precondition. Um, we could, I could say more, but probably unnecessary, we can read that as we um, think about it, but I found that really, really interesting. I remember, I think I said something about this maybe a few weeks ago in one of our discussions, because one of the things they're going to do in, in Chapter 3 is show in these different kind of um, almost archetypes of different sort of uh, regimes of society. Um, it applies similarly under capitalism, right? So under, um, under what we call you know, the, the primitive sort of, um, society, despotic society, as well, um, there's this thing which, which, like, like the body of our organs, like the body of our organs in the individual sense, um, falls back on this entire process of production and anti-production, um, and sort of lays claim over it. And then there's this kind of miraculating process whereby um, the subject who is sort of produced by this process comes to feel, um, comes to think that they were the authors of this process and that actually this derives from them right um and in the same way you can read that both on a scale from you know molecular up to a molar scale here um, and then apply it straight to um capital there um that seems what they, what what they what they do in this chapter uh, they do it later of course but um capital you know this is what marx also says is that capital performs this function where um it, it, there's some there's something that happens in a sort of intersubjective way where um, people become to come to the view that capital is itself the source of all value. Um, when of course it's it's actually the after effect of the real process of value production, right? Um, and so they've they've kind of got this really nice um, 
a sort of philosophically satisfying coherence there. It sort of works on multiple levels. Um, yeah, I, I found it an interesting. That's one of the most interesting bits, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean too. it would seem to follow too that things like use value, exchange value, and labor value um, wouldn't quite would fall in the same um, pit as what you're saying there um, in terms of capital value, right? That um, the territorial machine sort of precedes and doesn't even, um, in this case, necessarily give give rise to things like labor value, right? Because right. you're correctly, Mar- yeah. for Marx, labor value is going to be kind of how capital even gets its value, if I remember correctly. Um. Yeah. yeah, sort of. Um, it's worth also saying that, um, I'm sorry, I'll just say this if anyone wants to jump in, they can. Um, I think probably most sort of people working in Marxist theory today um, have a reading of Marx where labor per se is, is not the determinant of the value of a commodity. Um, it's a socially necessary labor time, um, which is different, which leads you to. Um, an understanding of value as um, fundamentally, it's always already socially determined, right? It's not, um, it, it, it's, it's, Marx actually sets up the kind of um, mud pie objection to himself in volume one, um, you know, to say, well, that's sort of the problem of Adam Smith and David Ricardo is that, you know, if it was just labor by itself and you would, you would um, expect the mud, the, the detailed mud pie to be worth something. Um, so for Marx, it's actually about socially necessary labor time, which means it's um, social, all, always already social. Um, so in a way, that kind of match, matches up quite nicely with this, because that's also what Deleuze and Guattari say, which is that um, uh, there, there's always like it's, you know, there's no design production before it's already been encoded, right? But they, I think they say that a little bit earlier in the chapter from, from the bit where I, um, where I just read from. Uh, right. Uh, I think uh, what this is describing perfectly is, is the fact that uh, the socius attracts and the socius by way, like the body without organs is unproductive and un- unconsumable, right? It doesn't really do anything rather than it pulls and pushes. So it attracts and repulses. Uh, like the schizo can repulse with regards to repressing representations, but it can also attract different forms of new connections to be made as a system of possible disjunctions in the entire surface right and that's that's what they're describing here it's essentially that fact that everything so there are two misrecognitions i think with regards to the synthesis right the first misrecognition is that uh this appears as the source of everything and if you guys remember that chapter about Immanuel kant right they describe this as kant's because kant had the destructive synthesis with regards to his proof of god in terms of the critique of pure reason but uh, what they say about kant is that kant expressed a black humor Right. That essentially uh, we create this stuff, but this stuff, uh, but we think that it's the source of everything rather than, you know, this having production that works behind us. And so that's the first misrecognition. The second one is that in terms of the conjunctive synthesis, we think it's uh, it's uh, we understand our subjectivity from this point of view that our sort of are some sort of uh, subjectivity of our own creates these desires rather than that these desires create us and it's not our own it's desires coming from the outside almost. Um, so I think there's a question in the chat about what the universal history 
element that they're getting at is. And I think, Varun, you managed to sort of start to talk about that. But can we just like make it clear just so that that we, you know, that question has a nice, satisfying answer? Yeah, I mean, so capitalism, it's it, 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 one way to understand it. I think we talked about this a bit was that it's almost like a threshold or a limit. And it marks a new threshold of both decoding and deterritorialization. I think we need to also be careful. Deterritorialization and decoding are two different things. They're not the same thing. Decoding has to do with semiotics. Coding and decoding has to do with semiotics. And deterritorialization has to do with like the flow of workers, right? Where did the workers, I mean, how do, how do these workers arrive at this situation as opposed to the other one? And so essentially in the capitalist system, right, there are two forms of labor and capital. Uh, sorry. Uh, the two forms of labor and capital, and they're expressed by two forms, uh, namely money, payment, and financing, right? Uh, th- so in, in, simple, in a simple circulation in which money is used as a payment, I receive my paycheck and pay my bills with it. Finance money, however, is completely different. It constitutes what Deleuze calls the capitalist form of infinite debt, debt a vast dematerialization or demonetarization of money. All of the structures of finance have their own territoriality. Rather than transferring a pre-existing currency as a means of payment, finance capital is a flow that banks create ex nihilo as a debt owing to themselves. It hollows out a negativity of, of, of one money as a debt entered to the liability of banks while projecting a positive money on the other extreme. Right. So it's the second form of money that constitutes the true economic force of capital, the immense deterritorialized flow that constitutes the full body of capital. And so today we, we depict an enormous so-called stateless monetary mass that circulates through foreign exchange and across border, borders, eluding control of states, forming a multinational organization consi- consisting of uh, some sort of power that the full body of capital in which desire each of one of us is plugged into where you know disjunctions are placed. So, so that that describes the system of capital that they're looking at, right? And they take that information and they abstract from that these ideas about coding and decoding, and then they look back at other versions of society and they apply those same ideas and they say, "Look, this is desiring production. This is deterritorialization," and that's what that's where they're getting at a universal history, if I understand correctly. Yeah, something like that. I think, in terms of that sense. Yeah, and I really like that. Uh this part uh, from the earth we had before this and to step back a bit from the Marxist terminology and maybe a bit from Deleuze and Guattari's uh, terminology as well um, I got it in this way that for them capitalism is kind of oblivious to its own uh, milieu to its nurturing medium um, that it is not an universal absolute history or system of rationality uh, but em- Embedded, for example, in the earth as a um, finite body, uh, body, which is able to deterritorialize um, the pure capitalistic thinking or breaking this uh, flows that um, merely present themselves as absolute and purely rational. Right. I, I think uh, one part of that is is actually something that I misunderstood for a while. I think I was reading it incorrectly for a long time until very recently when uh, somebody correct me, corrected me on this. But essentially, I mean, that's sort of their materialism, right? That these flows are very much a real material thing. Capital, all this stuff is very much a material thing that they try to allow to reach purely in a form of imminence as opposed to transcendence where psychoanalysis will put it. And I think, I think that point about, you know, capitalism... Is I mean, so capitalism is almost like stupid, right? It doesn't, it doesn't see people, 
it's, it, I mean, they, they almost have this thing where capital is alive, like it's some sort of monster or something, but it doesn't see people in that regard. I think Matt knows, has spent a long time with these concepts because that's how, at least that's how I know some people read it. Yeah, I mean, but that, that's literally Nick, Lan, Nick Land's view. Yeah, uh, no, that, that's like exactly uh, his. Yeah, it's that capital literally is um, a kind of self-constituting um, machine um, constituting itself um, in the future from the sort of resources of the past, basically. Um, it's a really weird way of looking at what Deleuze and Guattari are saying, but it's not completely without, you know, textual uh, merits. Yeah, no, uh, and, and one thing that, like, I, I think is interesting, too, where we go back to, like, Varun's comment about, like, Mark Mark Fisher and accelerationism contra, like, his his t- like his teacher mentor whatever um is that concept Actually, of like sorry sorry yeah, go ahead. is it is it, is it okay if i just um Alyosha asked a question there and it's um about what i just said can i clarify that before yeah, we yeah, go yeah. on absolutely i'll forget um Alyosha asked um a bit about you know constructing itself from the past like the resources of the past um he's he's really just sort of rephrasing what um deleuze gatari is saying here about um that capitalist, capitalism is almost, once it arrives, it's almost as if it's always been there, right? As this sort of monster on the edges, which every previous form has tried to um, uh, ward off in its different ways through rigorous forms of coding um, and, and other ways, right? Um, so, yeah, that, that's basically what, what, what he's getting at. Um, but he takes it in this sort of weird sort of science fiction sort of direction to give it a bit more flair, I think. <laughs> But but that's that's what that that English uh, intellectual milieu in the late '90s was. It was this like cyber fiction sort of uh, yeah theory fiction cyberpunk thing. Um, and if you're interested in sort of a a deeper analysis of that, Mark Fisher wrote parts of his PhD dissertation on that. Um, I so I, I have a conflict here. I wouldn't go for the Fisher dissertation. What I would go for is, uh, so Anne Greenspan, she wrote uh, this piece called, uh, that I'll try and link, it's it's called, uh, for her PhD at Warwick, she wrote uh, The Transcendental Time Machine of Capitalism, which is basically, it's an analysis of like Y2K and how that how that played into this, this notion of, uh, you know, the inhumanness of capital and how, you know, with the advent of recording systems and ledgers, how that, you know, literally changed public consciousness of temporality and stuff. Yeah. Sorry, well, what were you, what were you going to say before I interrupted you? (laughs) Oh, no, just just some dumb. (laughs) No worries. I, 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 I frankly don't remember, but it was more important to get, to get to, to Alyosha's question because, you know, yeah. If if they um, if they if they can't establish these sorts of things early, like I struggled with uh, this chapter initially when I first read this text, and upon revisiting it, uh, it, it makes so much more sense now having having done the work um, with you guys on on the foundations of anti Oedipus. So I'm happy to yeah to see yeah I think those the most difficult bit I found when I first read this chapter was um. Well, it was actually the, the, the section on um, the sort of uh, primitive territorial machine, where it goes into all this. They go into all this detail about um, uh, sort of uh, tribal um, uh, rituals and things like that. And uh, yeah, it, all of that was very, very difficult. But I, actually, I found once you pushed on through that, the rest of it's actually a lot. 
I, I think a lot more straightforward after that. Um, I, I'd like to. Talking, I, but, I'd yeah. like to mention that uh, a lot of this stuff about the primitive is based on the work of uh, Rene Girard. And so, uh, really, can can you explain that? Oh, I was about, I was about to get to Rene Girard. Yeah, I, whole, I, had, I, have, I have some notes written about him, but you can go first. Well, it's just the whole the whole point of uh, sacrifice being fundamental to uh, human development. Girard mm. uh, took off on that theme, and so um, and so I think that laying behind what um, they're saying about the primitive is uh, Girard's work. Right. Um, I mean, so I, 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 yeah. Sorry. No. Go on. Actually, never mind. Never mind. I think I think Kent had it down. That's it. I had some, I had but I don't think I had that much written actually. Yeah. In relation to what what was called scapegoat theory, I believe, in in Gerard's. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't read it recently, so I you know I don't want to try to summarize something I can't remember. Yeah, in the United States, there's actually over the summer. I mean, I don't think it's happening this summer, but over over the summer. For many years, Purdue did what was called a Rene Girard camp where like MA students and like recent undergraduate, uh, recent uh, students who'd finished their undergrad could go to like a camp on just Rene Girard. Um, <laughs> I'll try to find details about it, but it, it seemed fascinating. It's probably full of 4chan lit posters. Oh no. That's no. all they talk about there is Rene Girard. Really? You would yeah. about, they talk about Rene Guénon. <laughs> Oh uh, no! I, they, they do both. They do. They talk about both. Actually, uh, they got they got going on obviously for his um, you know sort of based reaction. Uh, Girard comes up quite a lot because of his sort of critique of um, sort of certain left uh, movements or whatever. Um, yeah, it probably is just one guy who just insists on posting about going on going on. <laughs> I guess like I'm happy to like just honestly just chat about the stuff. But um, does anyone have like questions about the stuff? Because I guess this is a recap. This is a recap episode, right? We probably should sort of, if we can, just try and. Um... <laughs> I think it's time to talk about anuses. Yeah. Okay. Word. Okay. So um, the su- sublation of the phallus from the penis through the anus or how does the anus mediate that sub sublimation how does that the logic work out um i think the way that i understood that and it's really shaky if i understood it at all but i think that the anus was the sort of model for like making organs into like pieces of an individual's private body instead of a collective experience and so what they're getting at with that sentence is that because of the anus as a model, then you go, you sublate the penis into the phallus and it becomes a transcendental lack thing. Yeah, I like that reading. For, for my part, I was thinking of in terms of because the because we're connecting the anal to sublimation in the sense that um, your control over this level of flow out of you and your control of um, holding in that flow and, and sort of breaking it 
um, or redirecting on that. That seems to be the um, effectively the model for sublimation, which is going to allow the anal to rise above us to sublimate. And therefore, something like castration, where the, the phallus is sort of snipped from you, um, is similar in the sense that the phallic being, I, I think, the next... Ah, I, I'm struggling with the stage of the psychosexual development, but the phallus being an inevitable part of that development um, and, and the castration um, dimension of Freudian psychoanalysis coming into play will sort of uh, replicate the anal sublimation onto the phallus. Yeah, that's the reading I have. So I think, I think that's pretty close, if not correct. But again, not exactly... Uh, a student of psychoanalysis. Yeah, I don't know if we have anyone who's like really well versed in um, Freud or Lacan or anything. Um, but I think all struggling, all of us struggling together, is sort of um, productive. Yeah, plug for a reading group. Uh, Zizek's Looking Awry meets tomorrow at this time, um, and obviously Zizek has quite a few. Uh, slights at at those in Guattari and Foucault in Looking Awry. So it's kind of, it's always fun to be there as like the resident like um, post-structuralist and you have to act like they're fighting fog because sometimes they are. Um, so if you want a better understanding of that, I mean, Looking Awry has been a pretty pretty great introduction to at least the Lacanian understanding of, of this idea of a return to Freud. So I'll just plug that now. So for Lacan's theory of psychosocial development, the mirror stage is the plays the primitive role. Is that right? I think so, but don't like resort to my thought. Like I'm inclined to say that is what I will say. Yeah, I think the whole thing with the Andre alone, when with the mirror stage is it's basically the the formation of the ego and the whole idea that the ego is outside. He takes and he takes that from Sartre's uh, what's it called transcendence of the ego. That's basically uh, that's like formation of this pre-individual subjectivity. But I think I think the key th- thing for the ego in Lacan is the subject of enunciation and the su- the subject of the statement with regards to his linguistics notion and the symbolic regime. I mean, uh, so I, I think with regards to, I mean, one confusion that I had earlier was with this idea of uh, on the socius, and we see this also in the body without organs in the previous chapter. So I think it starts coming out clearer here that notion of the surplus value of the code. So I mean, one way to look at this is uh, if any of you guys have read a thousand plateaus, there's that really nice example of the orchid and the wasp. That's what sort of describes it, right? It's the sense that, and it goes back to also, it could almost go back to genetic code, right? That it's not only dimensional that X begets Y, but also there's an alliance, and so there's the relationship of the wasp and the orchid. The wasp is an essential element to the reproductive apparatus of the orchid because it transports pollen. There's here a capture of a code, a surplus value of a code, a veritable becoming of becoming or, or wasp of the orchid or the becoming orchid of the wasp. I'm, I'm glad you bring up the surplus value too, because um, that's why I mentioned um, the, the Marxian take on like um, use value, exchange value, and labor value, and labor value kind of underlying exchange value. 
um, and and the social ratio therefrom. But it seems to me too that w- with this introduction of desiring production and that, and with the codification and, and decodifying, um, things like surplus value are are no longer going to um, be uh, precipitated from labor. It seems like it's going to arise much differently. I mean, uh, with regards to that surplus value of the code, that's essentially how, um, what's it called? That, that's essentially how, you know, we get that sort of notion of excess. I, I think with regards to the socius, uh, they take a lot of uh, influence from Bataille, right? And I hope Kent could back me up on some of this. Essentially that uh, the, the, the socius is, is that sort of place where excess gets registered also. What um, Holland says, at least in um, in his introduction to to the book, um, that this is based on Bataille's notion of expenditure, um, and that there's never actually every society essentially produces some form of surplus um, and always has done. So it's not really. Um, Man, it's not really that every society's um, organize themselves from the basis of fulfilling needs. Um, I think the idea is that they they're distinctly organized in terms of how they organize and distribute that surplus value in different ways. I think that's the idea. That's Holland draws this connection at least in in, in his in his um, his book on this. Um, one of the things I'd like to mention is the the, the whole idea that um, um, you know the, the there's there's certain taboos in the Western worldview, and one of them is mass versus set, and the other is uh, what I call meta system versus system, or the the general economy versus the restricted economy. So so what gets what happens is that these two taboos overlap. So mass and meta system are conflated, and system and um, uh, set are conflated. Uh, conflated. So you know you kind of have to uh, to understand it. You kind of have to separate them, but you have to realize that they get conflated. And when they get conflated, the taboo against them is the whole thing about uh, shit, and then the angel the the you know, and then they're referring to that when the when they talk about the the anal stage here. Oh, okay. I think that makes more sense. So it it just tur- it just turns out that it was, like if you look at mathematics, uh, the only two parts of mathematics that are mass related are geometry and topology. The rest of mathematics is set re- set kind of related. And so that's why, um, you know, in Principia, in Principia Mathematica, 
Whitehead and Russell try to um, uh, absorb mathematics into logic by concentrating on set theory. And, um, but they ran into a problem with the uh, Russell's paradox. Um, but, you know, so, so, so when you look at just the mathematics, you see that it's very restricted, the, the parts of, of mathematics that are mass related. But it turns out that in both in China and India, their their logics. Okay, so set set sets have uh, syllogistic logic associated with them. Masses have pervasion logics associated with them. And in India and China, the the uh, the logics were pervasion logics. And so that's when the, when the Westerners went in to those uh, countries as colonialists. They 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 said, oh, these guys don't understand logic because they didn't understand that there was an alternative kind of logic that they were using. It's fascinating. I I, I think that gets that, that that particularly gets us closer um, to to an understanding that will help us when we talk about transferal when um, we see the development of of uh filial relationships and that that section's going to be really difficult for me to return to um but yeah i i i think i i think that's that's a helpful um analysis particularly given that like there there's this movement now in in continental fill departments to try to read antiedipus and particularly a thousand plateaus through alfred north whitehead um which is just such a difficult task I mean, I, I think Deleuze's closest connection to Whitehead comes in the fold, his book on Leibniz and the Baroque, because that's yes. where he, that's, uh, you know, it's, I almost see it as a mix of Burke's, Henri Bergson and, uh, and Whitehead to create this sort of strange kind of mutant thing. And, he, and that's also the book where he mentions a lot of Heidegger and stuff. But the thing is that uh, in that book, right, oh God, I'm probably going off task, but w the Whitehead connection comes in the fact that uh, he takes Leibniz's view of curves and stuff, and he says Leibniz and uh, Whitehead were the first thinkers to conceive of objects in the world as events, and even maybe Bergson. But and and since they conceived of everything as events, everything can be analyzed through uh, Leibniz's notion of foldings and his notion of the curve. As you know, Leibniz is one of the inventors of uh, differential calculus. Yeah, I, I also think that uh, the concept of the fold uh, is, and particularly the way that, I'll find the lecture, the way that uh, Dan Smith uh, applies uh, the fold uh, to particularly this section of Antiedipus is particularly helpful. I'll find the lecture. I'll be right back. So one thing to think about uh, with respect to the fold, why it's important, is that um, you know, the uh, for a thousand years uh, or more, uh, you know, people uh, uh, used Euclidean geometry as the basis for their modeling of reason, doing proofs in Euclidean geometry, and everyone had to do them. And um, uh, in fact, I was just reading about uh, Joyce, and as a student, he he had to do Euclidean proofs, and so uh, the first Euclidean proof got into uh, Finnegan's Wake. But anyway. 
Um, uh, so, so there's this relationship between, you know, when you, when you do a Euclidean uh, proof, you're using a compass and a straight edge. And so you're, you're, whatever you can prove is uh, limited by what you can do with a compass and a straight edge because you're not going to measure anything. And, uh, uh, but, but so they were doing the proofs on, on paper, right, or parchment. But, um, but it turns out that origami, uh, which is picking up the parchment and start folding it, um, they, through origami, you can, you can solve things that you can't solve in you, uh, using a straight edge and a compass. Problems like the uh, uh, doubling of the cube and the trisection of the angle um, can be solved through origami uh, folding. Cannot be solved in Euclidean geometry. So, so this 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 kind of brings up an interesting image of the writing. You know that that they're doing these proofs. They're writing on the parchment, but but actually the thing that if they just picked up the parchment and started folding it, they would have a, a greater ability to solve problems. Watched a um, a video by um, uh, Manuel Delanda. Um, I think it was on it was on this topic. It was um, Gauss and um, his uh, assistant, maybe maybe way around about the um, Descartesian way of sort of uh, method of geometry and how um, they they basically revolutionised how we look at. Um, how we how we calculate these values and so on is that what you were getting at with a fold? Because I've for weeks now people keep talking about the fold and I've never understood what that meant. Um, is that roughly what what this is on about? Because it was a lecture by Manuel Delanda on um, topology and geometry with Deleuze, I think. Yeah, I I, I didn't see that, but uh, but basically, um, you know, uh, origami comes up in an interesting way in this. Uh, 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 story by Poe about the uh, the uh, you know the the letter that Lacan com- comments on in the first uh, chapter of uh, Ecrites, um, and uh, the 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 letter gets folded, and the reason it's not recognized is because it's turned inside out. So um, you know, so what what's interesting about that particular story is that the uh, uh, Poe goes beyond what Lacan talks about. You know what Lacan focuses on in that story. Poe seems to be more sensitive to the the nature of the um, you know the folding process and how it can transform things uh, than even Lacan is. Um, and I, I found that really interesting. And I, I wondered whether there were other stories where there was folding going on in Poe, but. Um, uh, so, so the 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 thing is that uh, both uh, Euclidean geometry and uh, origami, as different kinds of solving methods, um, uh, kind of gets generalized with uh, Descartes' realization of the ability to create uh, uh, coordinate systems for geometry that relates algebra to geometry, and this relation 
of algebra to geometry is really the brilliant thing that uh, Descartes did that I don't think anyone had ever realized before him. And, and that that's really what his fame should be based upon is the fact that he figured out that there was a mapping between algebra and geometry. And therefore, you could do more generalized calculations to solve things rather than having mechanical means of coming up with solutions. Yeah, just uh, I just posted like a quick thing I wrote, which is basically like what the books, what the folds about. But I don't want to get too into it. I think we're going too off task. I mean, I, I have a little another thing that I stole on from Dan Smith, where he basically gives like so. I mean, with terms to uh, molar flows as opposed to molecular flows, right? It's uh, you can understand that. It, uh, the molar, the molarity of flows rather than molecularity of flows a lot easier in my opinion, right? So he, he this I'm quoting Dan Smith right now. So he says, consider the fact that I first de delivered this paper at a conference in Italy. The money I used to purchase my plane ticket came from my paycheck, which is derived from my university's endowment, a flow that is in turn linked to students' tuitions, investments in various corporations, perhaps legal sweatshops. I subtracted from this flow to pay for my ticket, the coded price of which was fluctuating until I bought it when it became my stock. And this is the misrecognition of the conjunctive synthesis. So it's mine, uh, which is basically like, so yeah. that's what it was, right? The flight was a material flow, as as was a, the meal I ate on the plane: chicken salad, rice, chocolate, chocolate cake, which was assembled at the airline's hub city from flows arriving from elsewhere. The red wine flowed from the Napa Valley. The coffee from Central America. These flows are assembled in my meal. I break into these flows when I eat. It produces in me a wave of satisfaction. Voluptus. The portion share of these flows that fall to me, you know, for voluptus, you know, one of the key things they say is that it never forms a whole. Despite the fact that desiring machines fall, form a whole, it it's always going to be, it, you know, that's like the critique of Melanie Klein. That's always sort of fragmented and decentralized that you never reach that, that hole that Melanie Klein has, right? And so the flows... The portion, even though thought is a flow, I received the flow of opinion and received ideas. There is even an incoming flow from my reading of Deleuze's texts, and I cut into these flows, producing both breaks and captures in order to produce these texts. For Deleuze, persons are the interceptors of flows. I am the point of destination for numerous flows, which I intercept, and I am also the point of departure for the production of new flows. And it is precisely this synthesis and production of flows that Deleuze terms desire. Even our loves are interceptions of flows. And the key thing is that desire exists before subjectivity, and therefore it cannot be a lack. I mean, even ontologically, the concept of lack is kind of absurd, right? Because, you know, whenever you have an experience of lack, it's an experience of something. And, you know, even Bergson, when Bergson was talking about negation, Bergson's main idea with negation was that a negation is always an added on. So non-being is basically being plus the addition of the non which i'm pretty sure deleuze gets his concept of desire being productive that you know desire dehydration is not the lack of water but dehydration is the, is the adding on of an experience of lack and i think that all comes in books yeah. on yeah and and that therefore that, that added experience and they say this in in detail in chapter one in a pretty sort of polemical way it's always um socially produced lack is real but it's always socially produced um and they basically say it's done by the rich basically um and it's unnecessary <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's lack is deprivation right instead of 
absence it's the presence through deprivation that that it's there's a potentiality present that can't be connected with it's being withheld right i mean you look at it ontologically right there it's, it's always an ex- you know, we only understand lack from the experience of something. But the fact that, as Bergson found this out a long time back, the fact that it's an experience, it's essentially that it's 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 a it's a correlate that's been added on to something. It's rather than a negation. I, I wonder what the Hegelians think of this. <laughs> I should have got my phone out on He's a Hegelian. You know, I, I wanted to comment too because of uh, the reading, the the passage you read, uh, Varun discussed flows and all that. And um, I wanted to point out, you can see the encounter between private property and commodity production, or the decoding as privatization and abstraction, right? One of the um, the ironies of buying commodities to me is that, you know, for instance, I like books. Um, you buy a book that you didn't make to sell to somebody having not made it, right? So like, um, if you're a bookseller, that's your business. You're constantly moving commodities that you didn't make um, to people who, you know, who will probably sell them again at some point. So the idea of understanding is private property, or as um, personally owned at that that exclusive level, um, kind of negates the flow in a sense, right? It tries to, it, it almost presupposes a a full frontal stoppage or a, a permanent break. Um, and then on the other side, when you were talking about um, money moving from corporations to paychecks and that, and the way that that gets um, solidified in purchasing the ticket, right? that is part of the abstraction of money, of capital, not only as the recording device, but also as, um, as the way we kind of talk about it, as the way we... we since capital is non-productive, is the way we can only engage it through abstract quantities, $5, $10. Yeah. And, and that's, of course, you know, that's, that's what capitalism does, as they say, is it, it replaces every, it, 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 you know, constantly decodes and therefore replaces everything with a an axiomatic of the money, money exchange, right? Um, and it's probably no surprise today that... Um, a lot of people are sort of going to uh, the left and the right because it's not exactly a very meaningful, you know, um, existence where all these previous sort of forms are essentially reduced down to money exchange. It's one of the things I think Holland picks up on, which you find in um, uh, all sorts of areas of uh, Marxist theory as well, like Frankfurt School. Frankfurt School in particular, you find it in Lukács, who sort of influenced and sort of determined them. Adorno, Horkheimer, um, you know, they're, they're all sort of fascinated with this exact sort of same process of um, the money form as the only kind of uh, uh, sort of the only axiom which really underpins uh, capitalism as a system, really. Yeah, and to that point, they do say it's, um, I'll try and find the, here we go, uh, substituting for intrinsic codes an axiomatic of abstract quantities in the form of money. So that does support what you're saying, Matt. Um, it, it is an axiomatic about abstract quantities. And it's, it's the only one as well. Um, but of course, one of the things they, ever say, they also say is that that's the strange thing about capitalism, um, which is that 
um, the more it does this, um, the more it 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 comes up against the the very things which actually enable it to work in the first place um, in a whole range of areas. And Marx says it too. Um, it's it's this kind of fundamental madness of of its own logic, really. Um, but it undermines the conditions of its own possibility in many ways. Yeah, just to give a quick example, um, I come from a background in the construction industry um, where we actually like analyzed um, labor and, and cost and all that. And, and to that point, Matt, um, to just kind of illustrate a little bit, when we were talking about things like labor, labor was in so many hours, but those hours were divided by different classes of workers who did different things who are going to do different things, right? This is how you put together a bid for a project. And you you lay out what types of workers you're gonna use, whether they're skilled or not. And you begin quantifying hours through, um, through cash. And so then like, you're no longer planning the project as though you're going to go out there with a team and do it. And you know, that that's not what, what's happening. All that's happening is, uh, cost projections, where yeah. labor is nothing more than the numbers on a page. And then you go further, and what you do is you take things like uh, safety equipment, gloves, nails, whatever, and you start taking the dollars and cents of that and uh, using the denominator of labor hours. So you start taking a worker, um, or at least you, you, you take a population of workers in an array, and you start sort of nickel and diming it. And I, I used to comment, like, don't you think it's kind of problematic, though? Because, like, they don't necessarily use la- nails every hour of the day. Um, but nonetheless, that is how that level of business is done. And that is how uh, even something as seemingly material as labor is abstracted. Yeah, it's abstract labor expressed in the form of, um, the, well, the abstract form of exchange value, right? Um, it's why and also I'm sorry for constantly bringing this back to Marx but a lot of this chapter in particular is about building on him um, it's why Marx at so many points in, in, the, in his work goes from this really sort of dense dry economical sort of uh, style of writing into talking about sort of the ghostly um, sort of mystical qualities of uh, the commodity form and things because the further it goes, the more abstract and ethereal it is. Um, it, it becomes impossible to sort of get hold of what's even being described here. Um, it's just abstractions upon abstractions, basically. Yeah, and I don't mean to focus too much on Marx, but I think it's important to juxtapose Marx with this section because of something like socialism not or excuse me capitalism there's a freudian slip for you um capitalism as a social machine instead of an economic system right the way that they're changing these things and then sort of playing with concepts like i said where it's no longer like it's it seems to me that labor value doesn't really seem to underlie um the value of things so much as the desiring production and that and that's, I'm not even sure how you would take that into economics because uh, since they're doing this universal history and they have this pre-capitalism and capitalism, like 
that's just so fundamental in economics to be quantifying things through that that socius of money. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to have a go and have a think about that. I mean, you know, the relationship of you know Deleuze and Guattari to something like supply and demand, right? I mean, Marx, Marxism has been able to explain supply and demand since, well, since Capital Volume 1. He, the whole problem with it in Capital Volume 1 is he thinks it doesn't actually explain anything, really. Um, but the relationship between our design production and that is, yeah, that's probably really interesting to look at. Yeah, because Marxian economics will still maintain the market, will still maintain wage and supply and demand and uh, real wage and all that and inflation. So, like, it's very within the capitalist system. And that, you know, Marx talks well, about well. double consciousness, right? This awareness that um, you're participating in this sort of, um, this this phantasm with a pH. But Deleuze and Guattari seem to be like opening up what would be that, that um, duplicity to it. So as to show what is being, um, so as to demonstrate a form of deception, right? So as to demonstrate what, it, uh, what the, the, um, what the matter actually is—that's being duplicated and therefore deceiving. Yeah, I mean that—that's one of the big thrusts of the book, right? I guess is is um, to try and unpick the idea of ideology as. Um, you know, the masses being deceived about what what it is they really want, um, into saying, no, why do they want this, right? Um, how does desire interlink with this whole productive process, you know, production and consumption is one and the same? Right, I mean, the, one of the best parts about this book is their critique of Althusser, which is really great, is to say, you know, the Althusserian conception of ideology that understands itself in the sense that it creates a false reality where, you know, the masses are tricked in the sense and that that's what how the marxists view it and they they disagree with that really vehemently right they take the view that no we they genuinely desire their own repression yeah i mean that's not quite what altazer thinks but it, it is what a lot of sort of orthodox marxists do think yeah um for altazer ideology is basically a uh, it's a way in which we spontaneously relate to um the various structures of authority um uh, within any given society, <clears throat> um, it, it is, is essentially it is how it is a process by which you become who you are uh, as as a particular determinate subject. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of a lot of sort of Marxists, I guess, would don't have quite a same view on that. But you know, I mean, the Frankfurt School and pretty much everyone working in critical theory afterwards do have a slightly more more nuanced view, but I, but I like I like Deleuze Guattari's approach as well. Yeah, and, and Wilhelm Reich and Spinoza. I think Wilhelm Reich and Spinoza pose the question better, as they say it actually, that Wilhelm Reich and Spinoza pose that question perfectly. Yeah. But it's also a question that has been raised by Marxists for centuries, really. Um, because, I mean, in a way, Deleuze and Guattari take the same... Um, they do take a similar view there because, you know, the question is, why do people desire their own oppression, right? Um, but they're still taking a view on the matter that it is nevertheless oppression, right? Um, which is where, which is why Leotard wrote um, liberal, liberal Economy, right, um, against, against this book. Um, 
But yeah, I'll, st- I'll stop rambling now. <laughs> um, I'd like to read uh, a little bit from the from the chapter. Um, sure. The primitive territorial machine codes flows invest or invests organs and marks bodies to such a degree that circulating, exchanging is a secondary activity in comparison with the task that sums up all the others, marking bodies, which are the Earth's product. The essence of the recording inscribing Socius, insofar as it lays claim to the productive forces and distributes the agents of production, resides in these operations. Tattooing, uh, excising, incising, carving, uh, scarifying, uh, mutilating, encircling, and initiating. So I just like to mention that uh, you know uh, that nine thousand year old man that was discovered in the Alps <clears throat> that had been buried in ice and uh, and then came up as the ice melted. Um, you know, they, I mean, they've studied him and his body, and his body had tattoos all over it. But uh, the interesting thing is that he had uh, Lyme disease and uh, I think rheumatoid arthritis. And um, it turns out that the uh, an analysis of the tattoos, uh, which were little dots um, or little lines, uh, on on different parts of his body, there were quite a few of them. Just happened to be at uh, some of the locations of the acupuncture points that would have been used for the diseases that he ended up having. And so, I think that's a that's a really interesting point. Yeah, I mean, it's all about inscription, isn't it? Um, this passage, uh, but sort of a physical. Inscription upon upon the, the, the sort of the body surface. So the the only nine thousand year old man that we have mm. from Europe um, had these marks on his body. Yeah. Well, that's 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 one point in their favor, isn't it? <laughs> so there's a little bit of reality to their. Uh, you know their uh, what you, characterization of the primitive. Yeah. So then, going off that, maybe we should move the conversation into talking about cruelty as the method of inscription, because tattooing is a form of cruelty, where you are, you know, making your body bleed, and it is also a form of inscription. And maybe we should suss out the connection between those two ideas. So he says, this organization, which traces its signs directly on the body, constitutes a system of cruelty, a terrible alphabet. <clears throat> yeah, so I guess maybe the question is, you know, if we buy their uh, stuff about inscripting and what the socius does, how, de- how, does that, how does that mechanism of cruelty work? to preserve memory 
wanted to create things like writing. Um, ah. So um, there is a, a, a book which uh, has been written recently called First Signs. And the author of that book went around to all of the caves in Europe and took pictures of all the signs in those caves. So, so you know, everyone's fascinated by the painting, the paintings, but um, there are also signs in those caves, and they're all scattered around. And uh, previous archaeologists had not paid much attention to them because they were fascinated by the paintings, which are amazing. So, uh, so anyway, she got a grant to go around and uh, take pictures of all of the signs in those caves. So she went back into caves that had already been explored and specifically took pictures of the signs and created a database of them and found out that there were 32 of them scattered all around. And, uh, and so, you know, that, that's a very interesting thing in the sense that... Um, uh, you know, in terms of the progressive bisection, you know, that goes 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, uh, all the alphabets are within the ter- 32 level, right? They're somewhere between, uh, most of the alphabets are somewhere between 16 and 32. It, 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 it turns out that ancient Sumerian, which was the first written language, was 16, but most alphabets are, you know, in that area between 16 and 32. And um, anyway, I just thought I'd mention that because that is another example of uh, primitive signs actually being in those caves. And uh, it's just interesting that the the number of those signs that were found were the same number that uh, that is the you know the information level for signs and alphabets. So I guess then the question is, where does cruelty fit into that? So that Genesis seems to speak to, there's something in common between ancient Sumerian and, um, uh, I forget what you mentioned, these caves were in Europe somewhere. Um, so where does cruelty fit into that Genesis of that language? Where does it, where, what, wh- how does the cruelty that they're talking about lead to language? I guess I'll, uh, I'll give some thoughts on that. So I think it's important um, to remember that they write, um, society is not, first of all, a milieu for exchange, where the essential would be to circulate or to cause to circulate, but rather a socius of inscription, where the essential thing is to mark and to be marked. So... Um, Yes, we're talking about bodies, but we're also talking about things like partial objects and objects, right? So they give the example of the clock as its marking bearing. um, Yes, the clock tells you what minute is and what hour, uh, but the clock also has the the markings to um, to connect you with the memory of a a nine to five, right, of a capitalist workday. Um, 
And I imagine like uh, if you were a serf, there was something similar whereby telling time was very much intimately intertwined with um, your work day or with what you were doing that day, even with something like Sunday being the day of rest. So just want to make sure when we're, we're, we're talking about marking and being marked, um, you know, it, it does extend beyond um, human bodies, I think, although it is certainly um, intertwined with human bodies. Uh, as for the point about cruelty, so I know cruelty through Artaud, who has been referenced um, in this in Anti-Oedipus for his, uh, to have done yeah. Judgment of God. I mean, Artaud's notion of cruelty also comes in in difference and repetition, where he talks about, uh, and I think this is also there in essays and critical and clinical. He talks about all this stuff about uh, leaving the leaving the dogmatic image of thought can almost be a cruel experience or something like that. I think that comes from Artaud, where he talks about uh, ontological anarchism or something like that. That could definitely be one one way of reading our toe. Um, and uh, I'm going to look for the... I've got to have done with the judgment of God in front of me. Um, I'm going to try and find where he actually talks about cruelty. But one thing that we could mention is Bataille. Bataille has an idea that uh, these excesses of the general economies, uh, for instance, the Aztec... Um, sacrifices uh where they cut out people's hearts on top of pyramids uh to ensure the sun would come up the next day uh that 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 is an economy of cruelty and uh Bataille makes uh a uh, quite quite a bit about that that's an interesting thing to bring up um i think Bataille. i wonder if Bataille and uh uh, anti-Oedipus are sort of working uh, or sort of doing maybe something opposite but similar um, where for Bataille when you get sacrificed it's your way of like leading, leaving the order of things what he calls the order of things which is about you know sort of being exploited or being treated as you know in a way that's like less than fully humanistic um, whereas instead in anti-Oedipus right I think Jackie's example of the clock was really good because there is a sort of cruelty in cutting apart the hours of the day like that, right? Or, or in marking the hours of the day so that such that, you know, your work day becomes a huge chunk of your day. Um, but that cruelty seems to be instead of the sort of almost liberatory thing that a human sacrifices for Bataille, it's more ambivalent where there is a sort of ability to, you know, enact your desiring production onto the day, onto the 24 hours, or, or to even say that there's 24 hours, right? That's a sort of release of desire, of libidinal energy. Um, but it's also, it comes back and it, and it does sort of limit the human experience. Yeah, I think you're spot on with what you're saying. Um, let me read you a couple of things from Artaud on cruelty, because I think it does... I think it will illustrate what they're talking about here because the the way Deleuze and Guattari close this section with their explanation of cruelty seems like it's right out of Artaud. And so in the theater in its double, um, Artaud writes, this is why I propose a theater of cruelty. With this mania we all have for deprecating everything, I'm sorry, for depreciating everything. As soon as I have said cruelty, everybody will at once take it to mean blood. But theater of cruelty, 
means a theater difficult and cruel for myself, first of all. And on the level of performance, it is not the cruelty we can exercise upon each other by hacking at each other's bodies, carving up our personal anatomies, or like Assyrian emperors, sending parcels of human ears, noses, or neatly detached nostrils through the mail. But the much more terrible and necessary cruelty which things can exercise against us. We are not free, and the sky can still fall on our heads. And the theater has been created to teach us that, first of all. So you can see this notion of cruelty is intimately intertwined with um, our freedom, how that's socially constructed, right? And in many ways, it's a cruelty that is performative, right? So with desiring production, when you're marked with that, and the marking is occurring, there's a performing going on, which um, is important too, because right, like there's the, the metaphysics of it and the flowing. But I would also point out there's the consummating consumption, where the subject and the um, the subjectivities are are um, arise and intertwine, so that this level of cruelty can occur not only in the the physical marking. And so the production occurs in that, but so that something is consumed and consummated. Uh, to give you from to have done with the judgment of God, during the conclusion of the play, uh, Arto asks, and do you know precisely what is meant by cruelty? The response, of, offhand, no, I don't. Artaud's narrator replies, cruelty means eradicating by means of blood, and until blood flows, God, the bestial accident of unconscious human animality, wherever one can find it. Man, when he is not restrained, is an erotic animal. He is, uh, uh, stop there. But you can see this is, again, this is cruelty is er eradicating uh, through blood and in making blood flow this kind of notion of lowercase g god, which can be substitute, um, can play substitute for a great many things. So Musk, I would say like when we're talking about cruelty in desiring production, um, it's intimately uh, a part of how the, how the body and these objects are marked. But it is in the, when, he, when they're going to say, it's the way that desire is forced into production and product and desiring production is social production. It seems to me that for Deleuze, they're expanding in this notion of cruelty. So as to say, cruelty is marking things, inscribing things through the socius, so that desiring production actually starts occurring and they're going to be a part of it. Well said, those quotes were amazing. Uh, we have a quote from Bataille down here that, that I think would be worth reading. So let me see. The image of sacrifice is imposed on our reflection so necessarily that having passed the time when art was mere diversion or when religion alone corresponded to the desire to enter into the depths of things, we perceive that modern painting has ceased to offer us indifferent or merely pretty images, that it is anxious to make the world transpire on, cavne, ca on canvas. Ugh. 
Apollinaire once claimed that cubism was a great religious art, and his dream has not been lost. Modern painting prolongs the repeated obsession with the sacrificial image in which the destruction of objects corresponds in a manner already half-conscious to the enduring function of religions. Caught in the trap of life, man is moved by a field of attraction determined by a flashpoint where solid forms are destroyed, where the various objects that constitute the world are consumed as in a furnace of light. In truth, the character of current painting, destruction, apocalypse of objects, is not put clearly into relief. It is not highlighted in the lineage of sacrifice. Yet what the surrealist painter wishes to see on the canvas where he assembles his images does not differ fundamentally from what the Aztec crowd came to see at the base of the pyramid where a victim's heart was to be torn out. In either case, the flash of destruction is anticipated. Doubtless, we do not see cruelty when we envision modern artworks, but on the whole, the Aztecs were not cruel either. Or what leads us astray is this too simple idea we have of cruelty. Generally, what we call cruelty... Generally, we call cruelty that which we do not have the heart to endure, while that which we endure easily, which is ordinary to us, does not seem cruel. Thus, what we call cruelty is always that of others, and not being able to refrain from cruelty... Ah, Cruelty, we deny it as soon as it is ours. Such weakness suppress nothing, but make it a difficult task for anyone who seeks in these byways the hidden movement of the human heart. Hmm. I think it's sort of, it's an interesting contrast, right? Because it's not, it doesn't strike me as exactly the same thing that Artaud's talking about with the like making the sky fall around someone's head during the theater of cruelty. But it comes from a similar place. It's, 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 it's not quite different ways of saying the same thing, but there's there's something similar there that I think is worth bringing up and quoting both in, in length to sort of contrast. And it connects with what the same sort of contrast what we were talking about with the losing Guattari, right? Where you you have to do cruelty in order to make production part of desire and and and, and inscribe things. Yeah, I almost wonder what's the connection with Nietzsche here. Oh, yes, because we left him out. <laughs> I mean, Nietzsche spoke a lot about cruelty, right? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, we had like Will and Matt in here earlier, and they were going to, <laughs> and they were going, they were both sort of bringing up genealogy of morals, the essay too, and it made and it made me hope that they had read it more recently than I had. But you know, say lovey, right? They left. Um, but I think it's, mm, I think what they what they're bringing up with Nietzsche is that they're it's, it's sort of more um, akin to the the point that they're trying to make, where um, for Nietzsche, this cruelty of man against like man, right, is 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 about making a thinking animal, and and it's also about making you know morality, and I think that in a way they're taking insight from his work and uh, applying it to what they're trying to do. Cause what they're trying to do is a similar thing where they're talking about psychology and then these broader sort of social systems. And uh, for Nietzsche, that process of creating morality is, you know, and creating memory is sort of essentially cruel. Unfortunately, I do not have the ability to go into great detail. <laughs> So it may be revisit worth revisiting this short passage on 144 on the Penguin. For it is a founding act that the organs be hewn into the socius and that the flows run over its surface, through which man ceases to be a biological organism 
and becomes a full body inert to which his organs become attached, where they are attracted, repelled, miraculated, following the requirements of a socius. Nietzsche says, it is a matter of creating a memory for man, and man who is constituted by means of an active faculty of forgetting, by means of a repression of biological memory, must create an other memory, one that is collective, a memory of words and no longer a memory of things, a memory of signs and no longer of effects. Right, so this not only highlights the, the role of privatization and of um, abstraction, right, signification coming into play in, in terms of uh, replacing effects. But I think, too, one thing I noticed in the Bataille and in the Artaud is um, that, that piece to have done with the judgment of God is very much commenting on um, what might be called the religious and, and about going into more about what the religious says in the way that Bataille is also commenting on the religious. And there is a performative liminal aspect of that. There's a ritual taking place in that that play by Arto. And there's a ritual, I think, that Bataille is discussing and pointing at uh, during that passage, Musky read. And so with, with the liminal comes the moving through the ritual, right? Um, instead of it being sublimated or raised above, you're, you're experiencing something and going through it that is very much performative, right? You could apply desiring production to understand the ritual in that sense. You can also expand what we're talking about now to recognize not only that performative aspect, but to recognize that a memory seems to proceed and follow almost. It seems to proceed in the sense that we look back in the same way that universal history is retrospective, we we tend to try to look back on memory, yet memory is something in the present, right? You're not actually going back to the past or turning over um, sort of, uh, I don't want to call it fragments, but, you know, impressions in your head or in your mind about what's been, you, you, uh, to kind of be more technical about it, you're interacting with um, inscriptions and therefore engaging in some level of inscribing. And so, right, like that's, if you want to just bring that out one more point, since we are talking about the performative and in an Artovian sense, the uh, the theatric, memory in that way comes with a kind of scripting in the same way an actor references a script. So I would say for to, to kind of bring Nietzsche into that discussion of cruelty, that would be my immediate thought, is there's a level of scripting that Nietzsche is locating um, in terms of the way memory uh, can be fashioned and seem to sort of supersede the, um, the biological and the individual into the collective and the signifying, or um, to be more delusion about it, um, and to make the point again, the... Uh, the privatized and the abstracted. Well said. I think that I think that clears that up pretty well. Um, uh, another point is that um, you know one of the theories of, about why primitive people uh, mark their bodies the way they do in a lot of cases um, is so that. Um, children or members of the tribe 
can't be kidnapped by another tribe and and uh you know so that each tribe marks their their offspring in a different way so that they to show that they belong to that tribe okay yeah yeah that, that which which gets at what Jackie was saying about the the so the 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 individual and the biological can be converted into a collective and social kind of an abstract right uh, or or you know yeah that fits in very well yeah and that's the social machine versus like the um right because they're comparing the body to the earth there which because they're comparing the body to the earth or saying the body is an earth to be less representative, um, to be less representational about it because the body is an earth in that, um, scenario that speaks to a kind of, uh, territorial machine, not quite at the level of the earth, I think, but nonetheless an earth. And so like, even with what Ken's describing in terms of tribalities, um, for what we might today call cultures, I've never quite fully understood why there's there's a mincing of those two. But anyways, you can see a level of social machine inter, uh, having an interplay with those territorial machines. Uh, another point that I, I think is worth getting into a little bit is that... Uh, uh, you know, one of the things they've discovered about languages is that the older the language is, the more complex it is. You know, the the intuitive thing is that languages start simple and get more complex, but actually, it's the opposite. And um, most of the most of the simplification of language comes from the fact that different languages are used by the same group of people, and they they tend to simplify those languages. Uh, as they spread over larger areas uh, and get more speakers, but but uh, these primitive languages, um, uh, you know, tend to be very very complex, and and along with that is the fact that the uh, uh, primitive cultures tend to be very complex uh, thought systems as well, um, and so primitive doesn't mean simple. Yeah, I think you're right to say that primitive doesn't mean simple. Um, you know, I, I think that's one of the problems with, um, you know, that that interest in trying to say there's the civil and there's the primitive which precedes it. And so, like, look how great we are. Look at where we came from. But uh, with that final note, um, as Lou points out, we're now at the two-hour mark. And so I think we've got to uh, wrap up this talk and this informative, exhilarating, exuberant, exciting uh, review session for Chapter 3, Section 1, The Inscribing Socius. So thank you all for joining us um, and being a part of the Deleuze and Guadari Quarantine Collective. Um, just in case it wasn't announced, please join us Saturday for the um, literature group's discussion of Borges' The Garden of Forking Paths, and on Sunday for a discussion on Simondon at um, Saturday at 
3 p.m. or excuse me, Saturday at noon uh, Pacific time and Sunday at 11 a.m. Pacific time for those uh, wonderfully exuberant discussions.